Hi there, welcome to another Rahalastapa. This one recorded just last Sunday in Sheffield with Ian McMillan. You're what lucky people you are. It's a bonus for you. We're still on tour. Uh, we've got one more in 2019, which is today. If you're listening to it on the day of broadcast, Friday the 6th of December in Hull. Plenty of tickets left. Lucy Beaumont and Graham Fellows, who's the man behind John Shuttleworth and Jilted John and much, much more. Uh, we're also on the road next year. We're doing uh, Less Square Theatre in March and April. We're also doing the Birmingham Podcast Festival in, on March the 28th, I believe. That one sold out last year very quickly, and it's selling incredibly well already. It's only £12 a ticket, and it's just one guest, but I'm aiming for a biggie. Uh, we're also in Norwich, uh, which is also two shows, uh, and uh, both selling very quickly. So be quick if you want to get tickets to those. Go to richardherring.com slash gigs, richardherring.com slash slash tour. You can see all the places we're coming on tour. And um, also go to gofasterstripe.com. You can buy emergency questions books. You can buy Rahalastapa top trumps very soon, if not right now. Uh, perfect Christmas gifts, lots of DVDs and downloads as well. If you fancy getting something for your friends or if you want to suggest to your friends and family what you would like because they're not cool enough to know about Rahala Sipper. why not tell them about this you can buy all three different emergency questions books for 20 pounds uh, if you're quick there's a book bundle there which is incredible value that's three christmas presents three secret santas and you can keep a tenner and stick it in your pocket and run home so anyway let's sit back relax and enjoy Rahala Sipper. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sheffield City Hall. Please welcome a man who is hoping he will not be heckled by any hardcore knitters today. It's Richard Herring! It's miles! It's miles across the stage. Hello, Sheffield! Oh, my goodness, how lovely. How lovely to be here. Thank you so much for coming. You're wonderful. Um, my my uh, tour manager, James, I think wants to give you, a, give you to give me a round of applause, just to test the mic. So give me another round of applause now. Yeah. Totally bogus. Just did that for the, just for the feeling. Uh, it's lovely to be here. First time ever in the main room. I played the, 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 the small, the, not, incons- not tiny small room, but this is the first time. People all the way right, don't bother looking, right to the top. All right up there, mate, yeah. You don't know. Um, <laughs> so it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic to get this uh, and be here. And welcome uh, to Richard Herring's launching Sheffield Thursday podcast. Um, come up with a new... Got to come up with a new podcast. I've decided to get a new football team in Sheffield. There hasn't been a new one for a while. Try and piss off. Just basically for the, that gag, just so... It's an unusual name, isn't it? Because you know that it, was, it came out of the Wednesday Cricket Club, didn't it? That was how it started, and then they did a football version, and then it became Sheffield Wednesday. It's perfectly understandable. <laughs> but I was hanging out at the Crucible uh, today, playing snooker against myself. <laughs> and uh, me on a, on a full-size board as well. It's terrible. And uh, me one says he calls it Rahalastabas. So I don't know that's... <laughs> Some cool, there's some cool kids in from Sheffield. <laughs> Good to see. I, well, the last time I was here, or one of the recent times I was here, uh, I was heckled by... One of my favourite heckles was from a hardcore knitter uh, in, the, in the audience. So I'm hoping they're in today. They might start heckling again. That was, that was, the, that was the, what the intro was about. Um, and it is lovely to be here in Sheffield. Uh, of course, Sheffield, uh, uh, named after the River Sheaf. Uh, because, uh, and the River Sheaf's called that because, of course, it is full of sheaths. Every weekend. That's my joke about Sheffield. Let's see if I've got anyone. Oh, yes, uh, Robin Hood is, of course, from Sheffield, isn't he? That's the Nottingham claiming, but that is not correct. Robin of Loxley, the non-existent fictional character Robin Hood, is actually from Sheffield, and it's very important. And if you would open a Tales of Robin Hood in Sheffield, because Nottingham closed there, and it was the best thing there has ever been, so... Come on, reclaim that thing that didn't exist as yours. What's wrong with you people? Um, there are four trees per person in Sheffield. Did you know that? Four trees for every person. Seems a dangerous thing to do in a city that's trying to sell knives and forks to give everyone access to chopsticks. It's foolish. 
Of course, uh, as we know, uh, the Sheffield industry is not what it was, and nowadays 90% of men in Sheffield just make their living by stripping, uh, however unpleasant-looking they are, <laughs> taking their clothes off for loose change. Um, what else have I got? Oh, it's, of course, Sheffield invented... They're obsessed with steel here. They've invented so many things to do with steel. They love steel in Sheffield. Uh, they invented stainless steel, and you know you like you know you like steel too much if you're trying to invent a white clean version of it. That is, that's too far. You've gone too far. <laughs> can't, I can't read my own writing now in this bit. Oh no, that's right. I've done that joke already. Okay, good. Well, look, we're going to going to more or less crack straight on. Um, uh, I will say that uh, it's, this is nearly the last podcast of 2019. We do one in Hull uh, next Friday. Um, if you have any friends up there, do, uh, do, do let them know. Uh, and uh, so, so a lot of people are doing that 2010 to 2020 thing. In 2010, I had a Hitler moustache. That's how I began 2010. Uh, and uh, in 2020, as I end, I'm clearing stones and have two kids. I don't know if that's... I don't know if my decade's gone well or badly. I can't really play myself at snooker on Wednesday in front of an audience of 55 people. Can't work out if that's good or bad. Right, look, we're going to crack straight on. My guest this week, just there's only one, we do one show. We remember. He's probably best known from his appearances on Never Mind the Full Stops. He was on twice, which is impressive. He was also, of course, the drummer in Oscar the Frog. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Ian McMillan. It's a long way away. There he is. Oh, he's dashing across. There he is. Here's a microphone. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Love to see you. Welcome. Thank you. This is to this cavern, the cavernous uh, halls of Sheffield City Hall. Uh, how are you doing? Very well. I've had a great day. My Yorkshire puddings rose <laughs> like chef's hats. They've been really bad for about three months. They've been like little beer mats. But today, they rose wonderfully. I did the same thing. The mixture was the same. The oven was the same temperature. The lard was the same. Nothing was different, but... They rose, so I sent a photograph of them to my son-in-law, who always pretends that his Yorkshire puddings are better than mine, and my grandson calls them Yorkshire puddings, which gives them a certain dignity, so they were fantastic, so it's been a great day today so far. Good, and well done for staying on brand as a professional Yorkshireman. Of course. Straight, straight from the bat, straight off the bat. I'm actually, I'm actually from Surrey and living there all the time, but... It would be offensive. It could be offensive in someone else's hands. What are you doing? Offensive? Are you thinking of Dickie Bird? <laughs> I could be. Yeah. I could be. Um, let's, do you remember being on... I was on Nevermind the Full Stops. I don't think we were on the same show. Nevermind the Full Stops was that fantastic grammar quiz. Yeah. Wasn't it? Presented by the chap who wrote Downton Abbey. Yeah, Julian Fellows. I found, Julian it, quite, I found it quite annoying, I have to say. All I remember was that they kept asking you grammar questions that you didn't know the answer to. So you thought, if I pretend to scratch my leg, that'll be a sign to them that I don't know the answer. Yeah. And it didn't work at all. <laughs> so they ask you a question, you go, well, I'll tell you something. And you're scratching your leg. And then after a bit, they said, Ian, just stop scratching your leg for a minute. And I said, well, I don't know the answer to any of these grammar-based questions. Yeah. It was a straight... I was on with Jenny Murray. Well, there you go. Also from Barnsley. Okay. There she is. <laughs> She comes to all my shows, me and Jenny, Dickie Bird over there, they're all here. I thought it was too hard. I, in the, in the, in the, when you do the retakes at the end, Junior and Fellows was going, oh no, Richard, I'm afraid you've got that wrong. There's the apostrophe goes here. And I went, oh, fuck off. <laughs> Still, I see the apostrophe society today have actually packed up. Right. They've decided it's no, there's no point in carrying yeah. on with that, that lie that you need apostrophes in the right place because it's a fib, it's a total fib. People say it's a rule, it's not a rule, it's a convention. I love it when people put them in the so-called wrong place. When people go, I'm cleverer than that greengrocer because I know where the apostrophe goes in tomatoes. And you think, well, get a life. Just get a life. It don't matter. See, that's what I felt. I felt when I saw you being on Nevermind the Fools, I didn't feel you were the natural... Uh, contestant in that because I don't think you would be that bothered about the conventions. No, I'm not bothered about them at all. I think people can spell words how they want, they yeah. put apostrophes where they want, they put full stops where they want. It makes it more exciting, <laughs> particularly if you're trying to cross the road. <laughs> and uh, I just thought of that gag. You know, I, might, <laughs> I might keep that forever. Yeah, keep it. 
let's t- talk, tell me about Oscar the Frog being the drummer in Oscar the Frog, one of your first... Yes, Oscar the Frog. Uh, I think when you're 15, you want to be in a band. Yeah. And so me and my mate said, let's form a band. And we were going to call it Salt in Bulk. Because a van drove past my mate's house that said Salt in Bulk. And we thought, no, maybe not Salt in Bulk. And then, of course... <laughs> We thought of Oscar the Frog. Then somebody pointed out years later that, in fact, Monty Python had something called Ethel the Frog. Oh, and yeah. there was a band called Ethel the Frog from all. But anyway, we formed Oscar the Frog. And I said, I want to be the drummer. But we had no drums. So I had to use Tupperware. My mum's Tupperware. Big ones for salad, obviously. And I had no, <laughs> no drumsticks. So I had to use knitting needles. And so I, I was playing the Tupperware and the knitting needles. And my mate played the bass, and we got a gig at the Darfield Church Hall Garden Party, not Garden Party, uh, Jumble Sale. A room about, about this big, a stage this big. And Roland McArdle said, look, what we'll do is we'll let them start buying, then we'll open the curtains, and you'll give them 20 minutes, then we'll shut the curtains. And it was fantastic, because you could hear him buying all these goods. <laughs> then Roland McArdle went, right, you're on, and he wound the thing like that. And the curtains opened, and we played 20 minutes Songs like, uh, we used to sing Tie a Yellow Ribbon round the old oak tree backwards because they thought it was really funny and it's not funny at all. And with the, uh, ribbon yellow, I tie tree oak all the round, years long three bean, it's me what still you do. And it was... And we did 20 minutes of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Then the curtain shut and nobody took any notice. They were just carried on buying stuff. Going, but then you're bit by the showbiz books. You yeah. think, right, I'm going to go. And, and so we became Barnsley's first folk rock band. And we were playing all over the place. And then eventually, I bought some drums. And I was so bad that they sacked me and my mate, the bass player, without telling us. So somebody rang up and said, I saw your band last week. You weren't in it. So I rang up and I said, what happened? They said, we thought you'd lost interest. I said, I haven't lost interest. They said, well, actually, it's because you're crap. I said, well, I know. But then, so just me and my mate then. With either drums, he had the bass, and of course, it's, it's too early for drum and bass, so we didn't know what to do. So <laughs> we then formed a, a comedy duo called Jaws that went round folk clubs singing the aforementioned Tyler Ribbon. And also, we used to do this thing where I used to sing Chattanooga Choo Choo whilst eating two bags of crisps without swallowing any. And we thought that was so funny. And the front row would get sprayed in crisps. And, and at phone clubs, it was great because you'd do that. And then the, the organiser get up and say, good old lads. You say, good old lads. And then you'd, and somebody else would come on. And we, we, then we, we did things like, uh, we said, halfway through, we got our mate, Cess Cartilage, to turn up, <laughs> carrying... I wish I was making some of this up. Carrying, <laughs> carrying an accordion. And he'd come in to wherever the gig was, halfway through, and go, sorry I'm late, lads, I missed my tram. And of course there were no trams. And <laughs> we thought that was even funnier than singing... And imagine the silences that we sat through. It was great. But then, of course, you know, the, the showbiz bug is bit. Are you bit yeah. by the showbiz bug? Oh, Oscar the Frog. We, we, uh, we made a, a single uh, that was really terrible, and we, we had a load pressed, but then we, didn't, we, we, we were so embarrassed by it. We, we actually, we threw it away in a kind of, another dadaist event. We threw it into River Dern, like chucking the Yorkshire puddings that I mentioned before that weren't as good. So they're in there somewhere, this is like that. This, uh, well, they just made their way down to Hull. Yeah. They're just coming out by Barrow and Umber. Well, those could be worth a lot of money. There's, a, there's an E.T. game, isn't there? There was a video game of E.T. that they got buried in a desert, and it's worth, it was terrible, but it's worth loads of money. Could be that, don't we could be, I could be, or the people of Barrow and Umber could yeah. be sitting on a fortune they if they dig be. one up. <laughs> <laughs> Look out for that. So let's talk about. I mean, you you've lived in the same town, Darfield. Yes. All your I, whole life. Yes, all my life. I was born yeah. there in 1956. My dad was away at sea, so I was born in my auntie's house on 34 North Street. And for years, my mother never told me the facts of life. I said, "Mother, how was I born?" <laughs> she went, "You weren't born. You were brought through the snow by a nurse," which is a beautifully poetic thing. I was about 35. And she, <laughs> that's not true but the thing was my dad was an, in, an, in the navy him and my mum met as pen pals yeah. in the war my mum was from Barnsley my dad was from Scotland they met as pen pals this most romantic thing where single service people could write to each other and they wrote to each other for two years before they met they tried to meet for afternoon tea in Queen's Hotel in Leeds because it was the war they just missed each other my dad was sailing around the world my mum was stationed in Lancashire and eventually, they got married on a 48-hour pass. 
And my dad sent this telegram to my mum that said, get leave now. And my mum sent a telegram back saying, cannot get leave. And he sent another telegram, get leave now. Meanwhile, he's coming up to Peebles where they're going to get married. My mum, they won't let her go. So she climbed over the fence. And I said, how did you manage to climb over the fence? And she said, Elsie distracted the sergeant. And I never quite knew what that was. And then my, my dad stood at, the top of the, stood at the top of the church steps with a bolt of Chinese silk under his arm that his sister was going to make into a wedding dress. Didn't have time. They got together. <laughs> my mum got off the wrong, wrong station at Peebles, ran up the main street of Peebles, her hat fell off, her waff hat. They got married. They had one night of passion together at Tontine Hotel in Peebles. Then my dad disappeared on secret war work. And then... Came back and then my mum went back to the wafts and got arrested two weeks in prison for love. And that was always their story. They'd tell it every day, they'd tell it every night. Eventually I worked out they're making quite a bit of it up. And in fact, uh, <laughs> my dad didn't have a bowl to Chinese silk under his arm. That's, maybe that's why he ended up telling stories because they were just great at telling tales. Yes, I've always lived in the same place, yeah. which is great. It just means that everybody, <laughs> everybody knows you. Yeah. You know, so I go into the shop and they go, hey, up, watch out. He'll write a poem about this. Shut up, fill up, say out. You go to the shop and you go, bag of plain crisps. They go, hey, put that in a poem, put that in a poem. <laughs> I was walking down the street in Darfield and somebody was walking across this zebra crossing and they almost got knocked over by a scooter. And then she put, put that in a poem, put that in a poem. <laughs> and I got this fantastic heckle in Darfield. When I was walking through the middle of Darfield and this car pulled up. This bloke wound the window down and went, Ian Macmillan? I went, yes. He said, you're on the radio? I said, yeah. He said, you're on the telly? I said, yes. He said, you write poems? He said, yeah, I do. He said, you're shite. He drove off like that. And I thought, God bless the working class. Can't live with them, can't live without them. At least he's seen the whole thing. He's and seen he's the given, whole thing. Seen the whole, I've working. given you a chance. I've seen every single thing you do. Yeah, he was. He was a completist. <laughs> it's all terrible. And I just lived down the street from my brother, who looks just like me, except he's totally bald. So we do look like a novelty crew, it says, when we're walking down the street. And, and also, he sounds just like me. Right. Hello, Ian. Hello, John. It's like talking to... Hello. And then, before the taxi firm, local taxi firm, got a computer, they used to actually take the, phones on the, on the, take the calls on the phone, obviously. And so sometimes he'd book a taxi at half past five in the morning, and he'd come to my house, because they thought it were him. Hello, taxi from... Right. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, my grandson, <laughs> my grandson who's three, has started doing impressions of me. Right. It's very easy to do. Hello, Grandad, hello, hello. And I like espresso. He's saying that. Have you got an espresso, Grandad? <laughs> Again, I, I wish I was making some of this up, but it's all true. Well, I'm a Yorkshireman as well. I don't sound quite as Yorkshireman as you, because I was, I was untimely ripped from Yorkshire uh, as a four-year-old. Where, which then, part of Yorkshire? Pardon? Which part of I was Yorkshire? In Pocklington, I was born Pocklington, in Pocklington, yeah. Fantastic. That's like York with sophistication. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I don't remember too much about it. But I, I still, you still have that Yorkshire feeling. There's that kind of... There's something about, it's a kind of, the word in South Yorkshire is brussen. It's a kind of brussenness. It's a kind of oppositionalness. It's a kind of... We pretend we're Texas. We pretend we're really massive as a county, which we are, but you pretend that you're kind of bigger than you are. They go, what, Britain? It's only that big, but Yorkshire's bigger than Britain. You know, and, and people kind of make ridiculous claims for Yorkshire about the fact that it invented everything and it did all that. And so, yes, you do have a kind of... You know, and people talk about this professional Yorkshireman thing, but I always think it's better to be a professional Yorkshireman than being an amateur uh, Lancashire man, which must be very strange. Because, as I often said, you can never get a cup of tea out of them in Lancashire. Because you go to their house and they go, do you not want a cup of tea? You go, I don't know, you've not asked me yet. Will, will you not be having a cup of tea? I've not, you've not asked me, do you not want one? Not yet. <laughs> Have you not had one? No. This does go out to Lancashire, but, you know, fuck them. Um... I don't think it does because they've sold that radio there. Oh, they have. <laughs> That's me thinking it's on the radio. It's a podcast, obviously. obviously. It's all changed. It's all changed. But, you know, I, you've made that... I mean, is it a choice or has it just happened that you've stayed in the same... Because that's... Well, it, it, it's just happened, really, yeah. because um, for a start, I can't drive, so it's got good rail and road links, uh, rail and bus links, <laughs> yeah. so that's good. Uh, my mum and dad live down the street, and as they got older, I had to kind of look after them. And also, I mean, obviously, I could do my job anywhere, 
But then what I like is that thing I mentioned earlier about getting home and they all know you. Yeah. You know, when I've, you're going to the shop and they go, we saw you. We saw you on telly. Yapping. You know, it's the, <laughs> and I do like that, the fact that nobody at all is bothered. They gave me the freedom of Barnsley. They rang up, they said, we'd like to offer you the freedom of Barnsley. I said, uh, do I get to march my sheep up Marky Till? And they went, no. I said, do I get a big daft comedy key? And they went, no. I said, can I go into shops and get goods free? They went, no. I said, can I go to Oakwell and watch the Mighty Barnsley for no? They said, no. I said, what do I get? They said, you get a certificate. <laughs> I said, oh. And so then I must have sounded disappointed because they rang back and said, it's framed. <laughs> so, so I've got this framed certificate. But then my brother wanted to go for this, this thing when I got the Freedom of Barnsley. And my brother went and we got it. And then I was so excited. My brother had to get back. I actually left Miss Freedom of Barnsley at the town hall. Oh. So they rang up and said, you've left your casket. I says, I'm not, I'm not dead, I'm, I'm still with you. And it, it, your freedom of bounds is actually in a casket like that. And I've not actually, you, you, all you get is the casket. You get right. the, so there's kind of meta. The freedom of Barnsley is the freedom of Barnsley. It's nothing else. Yeah. I asked Dickie Bird, who's also got it, I said, do you get free parking? He goes, I've looked into that, Ian, no chance. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> but the thing is, it, it, it's nice living somewhere that's always, that's been on the cusp of change for years, you know, so... When I, when I was little, when I was little, nothing happened in Barnsley at all. Nothing ever happened. I remember at school we had this, we had to write Barnsley in the year 2000. And I put, we will, uh, we will eat our dinner in, we will eat our dinner in tablet form. We will wear silver space suits and we will go to the pit on an electric monorail. <laughs> because we thought nothing would change and yeah. the pit would always be there. And of course, it's gone. And all these amazing changes have happened in Barnsley over the last 50 odd years. I'm 63, my lifetime. Barnsley has changed so much and it's interesting. You keep, we keep trying to reinvent ourselves, all kinds of things happening. And it's nice to be in that place. You think, you know, for years before they found coal, nothing happened in Barnsley. Occasionally somebody would eat a turnip. You know, that was it. <laughs> You know, they dig a turnip up and eat it. And then, I always imagine, like, some toff sat in his house. And a chap runs into the house and he's got coal all over his face. And he goes, look what I've found in garden. And toff goes, thank God for that. And then, so now in Darfield, there was a place called Middlewood Hall. That was where the bloke lived who owned a lot of the pits. And he had a, he had a special wall built that were high enough so he couldn't see him walking past. Right. Little, little blokes in flat caps walking past to make his money for him. You know, he couldn't see it. So, yeah, so that, 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 that change has happened. So it's, it's nice to be there where change happens, interestingly. Yeah. And it's interesting coming to Sheffield because, of course, Sheffield was always the big city when I was in Barnsley. And the, 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 the cultural difference between Barnsley and Sheffield, linguistic difference, yeah. you know, we call them didas. Because they're going, ah, daddy, what are we, daddy, what are we, daddy? <laughs> They got this wide A. Nah, Darren, are they going to park the car in car park? <laughs> and my Uncle Jack lived at back of Hillsborough, and every Boxing Day we go to see Uncle Jack, and he always did this trick. He, had, he was a joker, so some years he'd put a, like a, an electric thing and he'd check your hand and it'd buzz, and some years he had like a squirty flower, and one year he bought some fake rubber jam tarts, <laughs> and he went, Darren, this is we just about to go, and he goes, Darren, would I like a tart with one of goes? And my dad, who was a very innocent man, he goes, I'll have a tart, I'll have a tart, Jack. <laughs> so, he, he gave, my Uncle Jack gave him this rubber jam tart, and my dad bit it, he goes, it's a bit rubbery. <laughs> and, and Uncle Jack says, ah, that's because he's a rubberin'. <laughs> Thereby explaining the gag at the same time. And so then, because in my Uncle Jack's eyes, it went well, for the next 20 years, that's all he did. So we'd go every year and he'd go, and my, my, my dad would go, hope he doesn't get the tarts. <laughs> I really hope. And my mum my mum go, look, just pretend you haven't seen him before. And he'd go, Darren, don't I want a tart before you go? He'd go, are you all right, Jack? I'll have a tart. They're a bit rubbery. Ah, that's because the rubberings. Every year. Every year. I do wish I was making this up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of, when you actually say it, it sounds ridiculous. But it's true. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you some questions about Darfield. Yes. Which chemist do you use, the one on Snape Hill Road or the one at the doctor's surgery? Oh, there was the one on Snape Hill Road. There's, there's that well, it's funny, the one on the doctor's surgery, you'd think it would be quicker because it's next to doctors. Yeah. But the one on Snape Hill Road, but what they said was, you have to order your tablets two days in advance, <laughs> which is like 
a mythical two days. Like, time just slips. <laughs> so, for example, if I want some tablets now, I should have ordered them in 1972. <laughs> so, I go in and I go, how many tablets ready? They go, no. And they say, well, what's your, what's your number? She so give me your number. They say, we'll send you a text message. And they don't. <laughs> don't. They think that by saying the words, we'll send you a text message, a text message appears. <laughs> so last time I went, I said, my tablets are late. They went, well, we, we send you a text message. I said, no, you haven't. Then when I got home, they sent me one. And I said, look, that's not how it works. You meant to send them before you get... So I used that one. Although yeah. I should use the one in the... In the it used to, be, used to be a dancing school upstairs. Right. The one, that one, that was... Used to be, so when you get your tablets, you'd hear people doing that upstairs. <laughs> and it was, like, it was like the harbinger of doom. You go, have you got me tablets? No, we haven't. <laughs> I don't know who that was dancing, no, to be honest with you. It's good. Uncle glad Jack, I, I think. Glad I asked that. Um... <laughs> Have you been to the Morris Dobson Museum? The Morris Dobson Museum, yeah. the only museum in the world named after a gay cross-dressing ex-marine. Oh, yeah. Yes. Morris Dobson was a gay cross-dressing ex-marine who, with his partner Fred, ran this shop in Darfield. Okay. And they were fantastic. They, they, my mum remembers them walking around Darfield, in her words, looking like Barbara Cartland and Joanna Lumley. And because... <laughs> Because they were ex-military, if anybody said anything to them, they'd just give them a crack. And so it was a, it was, it was a fantastic example, I think, of, of people accepting people. It was a wonderful thing of acceptance. And Morris, uh, Morris and Fred ran this shop, and Morris would go in, and he'd, he'd sit there on a high stool in a, in a powder blue suit when he went cross-dressing, looking a bit like an old coward, and he had a cigarette in a holder. And he'd say, if you say bugger, I'll give you a spangle. <laughs> and... and Morris and Fred was the, the quieter of the two. Morris was quite yeah. flamboyant. And then we all thought, we thought Morris, because he was the older one, would die first. Fred actually died first. Morris then got religion, and he wanted the church to put the Fred memorial window in the church. Right. And to, their great, to my great despair, uh, they never did. So when he died, Morris gave his shop to the Barnsley Council, to the, the Morris Dobson Memorial Heritage Museum, so it's there, yeah, and I volunteer there once a month in the, in the shop. I, I would invite you to come along. We've got some fantastic pictures of Morris. We've got all kinds of artefacts. We have a cafe. Uh, I, serve you, I serve you stuff in a penny. Okay. Uh, my, wife, my wife serves stuff in a penny. My grandson's there in a penny. My brother comes. It's like a, it's like a group of Ian McMillan all in the same room. Yes, I would definitely I would recommend the Morris Dobson Memorial Heritage Museum. I'd also recommend you went into the churchyard and saw this fantastic memorial stone that says, Here lies the body of so-and-so who inadvertently pulled this stone upon himself whilst in the service of his master. So <laughs> this bloke's going, oh, I've just flattened my scent. And he goes, well, bury him under it. That one over him. Also in the churchyard is Ebenezer Elliot. Ebenezer Elliot, the corn lord. I've looked rhyme. up the Wikipedia page. I didn't know it was anything to do with the museum. Yes, that's that, was right. just, that was just luck. No, Eb <laughs> Ebenezer Elliot was the corn yeah. law rhymer and he was yes. a, a fantastic poet of resistance and it was buried in Darfield Churchyard, and souvenir hunters used to chip bits off his grave. So John Betjeman came. Wow. Uh, and, so, and it wasn't a television thing, I, just, I think it just popped in. And the story is that he said, we must put railings around, uh, around uh, Debonese Relic's grave so that people stop chipping things off. Now they have. There's Ebenezer Elliot's grave with, with things like that. So yeah, I'd recommend you can have a full day in Darfield. Yeah, sounds good. You can good. come to the Morris Dobson Museum. You can look at that stone. You can recreate throwing the stone upon yourself with yeah. a balsa wood stone. You can go and look at Ebenezer Elliot's grave. Order your pills when you arrive. Order your pills, no. Order your pills then, uh, three weeks before you set okay. off. Oh, yeah, definitely. You might, might get a text be. message. I don't know. You might get one from Morris first. Okay. Good, that's all I've got about Darfield, but that worked quite well. Now, I think you definitely live there. That's, uh, that was, I was just testing to see whether... It... There's actually another Darfield. There's a Darfield in New Zealand. I was there. And I was hoping to get some kind of twinning going, because I, I, I looked up the opening times for Darfield Library, because I'd forgotten, and it said they opened Sunday afternoons. I thought, they never do. They haven't opened Sunday afternoons for years. And it turns out there's actually a Darfield in New Zealand, so we might get some kind of town twinning. Because yeah. Barnsley used to be twinned with a town in China called... Well, it was spelled F-U-X-I-N. <laughs> and it was pronounced Fusan. <laughs> Except that the councillors might go, oh, we twinned with that, they're not spooks in. And so they had, to, they had to change their minds about being twinned with Fusan. This is Kat and Nat from the Mom Truth Podcast. Does your little one love Paw Patrol? What about dinosaurs? Well, the new season of Paw Patrol is here, and guess what? 
It's a dino rescue. I can't wait for my kid to watch each episode 10 times a night. All of your holiday and birthday gift shopping is pretty much done because, of course, there are a whole new batch of dino rescue toys. And for a limited time at Target, get 15% off the new Paw Patrol dino rescue toys with the code PAW15. Check it out. It's gonna be possum. Let's talk a little about you. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, all it's right. good. It was that was all good stuff. You, you've got good stuff. Uh, it's um, <laughs> you became a poet basically. Out of all this stuff we talked about earlier, yeah, yeah. the performance you became a poet. Yes. You worked in a uh, tennis ball factory. Tennis ball factory in Barnsley, Slazenger's tennis ball factory. Right. What it was, I wanted to be a poet, but um, it's really hard to make a living as a poet. So. Yeah. I worked, before I worked at Slazenger's, I worked in a building site in Sheffield at uh, Owsley Park at Chapeltown. And I remember getting there on the first day and I'd been to college and I got, uh, I'd, I'd got this degree called Modern Studies. Yes. Ah, which means you didn't work very hard. And uh, <laughs> from North Staffordshire Polytechnic. And I got there on that first day at the building site and they were all Sheffielders. They went, Nadine, Nadine, we've heard, we've heard Dad's got a degree. <laughs> I says, ah, yeah. They says, that's what we'll call it. Degree. They used to call me Degree. Hey, up, Degree. He's here, Degree. And I've always read Guardian, and they used to set fire to me, Guardian, every day. They went, Aaron! Daddy, have you done that degree? And, and on the first day, I was walking out building site, and I thought, I've got to get on their side because I'm going to get bullied here. And it was a very muddy building site, and there was a bloke. It stood it mud and it was sinking up to his knees. It mud. He's going, Degree, degree, help me, degree, get me out of here, degree. I thought, if I can get him out, I'll be the hero of the day. So I'm, I couldn't reach him, so I'm shouting, Bloke, sinking it mud. And everybody's driving down and we're all reaching out. And then suddenly he stood up because he'd just been kneeling down at mud. And he, he says, Not so clever, had a degree. I said, No, I don't suppose I am. And then I got the sack from there because. Um, I put, of course I got a degree I was put in charge of the stores and one night I forgot to lock the door and so these burglars came and emptied the stores so I got the sack but then what happened was the firm was called Hassel Holmes and um, the next day after the burglary next day there was an advert in the local paper the Sheffield Star that said doors for sale just like Hassel's so the police were able to nab the culprits so then I left there, I went to work in this tennis ball factory in Barnsley, where we used to make uh, 38,000 dozen tennis balls a week. Wow. Uh, I was on a machine called the Buff and Dip machine, where it was like a, a set of cups like that, and you put these half tennis balls in, and they went round and got buffed and dipped, then you'd take them out and put them in a tray, and you do that all the time. And I thought, if I can keep, th that's interesting, because I might be able to think about writing poems, because okay. that's what I was doing when I was, I was at the building site, but... Yeah. You had to use a little bit of your brain to do it. And that was kind of, I was becoming atrophied. You know, you couldn't think. And then we put the, on this thing called, you had to stick the two halves together. And, and that was when, and that was, that was, it wasn't very good, you know. So that was, and then I applied to this Yorkshire Arts Association. Would give you up to a thousand pounds if you gave your job up. And this is 1981. Right. And a thousand pounds now is a great amount of money, but then a massive amount. So I applied for this thousand quid. And they gave me 800 quid, which is a funny amount, because it's not that much less. But psychologically, it feels a lot less. A thousand pounds, 800 pounds. But luckily, my wife and my parents are always very supportive. And they went, go on, then give your job up. Become a poet. So then I gave me a job up. And I actually, I, I, as I walked out, I tried to steal some tennis balls. And I, so I'm walking out looking like, looking like the Michelin man, all these tennis balls. And, and I walked out, and the bloke went, good luck in your future career, said the security man. Then he went, give them tennis balls. <laughs> <laughs> The thing was, they were, even, they were high altitude ones, because we used to make the ones, the ordinary ones. For spacemen. The ordinary ones were 21 pounds of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. But if you had selling them to somewhere like Tibet, okay. they had to have 14 pounds of pressure. Is so there when, a lot of tennis in Tibet? Loads of tennis. Is there? Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, sorry to judge the people of Tibet. But the thing with the high altitude tennis balls is, as he's getting them out, because the high altitude, they didn't bounce very far. Right. Well, that's good because you don't want, if, you, if you knock it off a mountain, you don't have to climb that's all the That's exactly way down. what it is. Yeah. And also, because there's less air in yeah. Tibet, I've been told, right. they actually bounce the same distance as they would in Barnsley. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's now shut and it's been replaced. The, the tennis ball factory's gone, right. knocked down, and replaced by an estate called Tuscan Gardens because in the late 1980s, early 1990s, Will Allsop, the architect, said that Barnsley can be the new Tuscany. Right. And people still remember that, and so they met this estate <laughs> called Tuscan Gardens. Is there a tennis court on there? 
There's no tennis court. There's, there's a couple of tennis balls that are actually buried. <laughs> as, as the, the weirdest job I had there, actually, was on a Sunday morning, if you wanted extra overtime, you'd have to wheel wheelbarrows full of rubber dust through factory. And it was like a fantastic, surreal event. Because you'd have these... And they're wobbling, these barrows like that. And they wobble about. And I used to work with a man called Alan, who made his own false teeth out of wood. And he said... <laughs> it's true, it's true. He said... If it's all right for George Washington, it's all right for me. But actually... I don't think George Washington made his own, though, did he? He, didn't, he did. He, he, well, I think somebody made it somebody for him. Made him for what him. he actually said was, it's all right for George, because <laughs> they were very badly fitting. And also he did that fantastic thing, what he used to do, he would go, if it, yeah. all right for George, what? Well, he did it, <laughs> all right for me. And, it, we'd, and we'd be pushing these rubber dust wheelbarrows, and he'd go, he'd say, it's not a job, this. It's not a job. I do find the comedy whistling, yes, is yeah. great if you're being told off by a superior. I find it deflates the situation. If they go, look, I'm really annoyed with you, you go, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologise profoundly and profusely for my demeanour. I think it just it makes it it's it's a hard, nice thing to do. Yeah, I think nice. that's good. That's good. So, you became a poet. I did. What, I mean, you know, I... Take me through your. How does it? How does it work being a poet? And is it? You know. How, how's well, sometimes the, how's you the sit, you sit there. Sometimes you sit there like this. And sometimes you sit there like this. <laughs> well, I think I, I, the thing is, um, I always get up ridiculously early. Right. See. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I get up yeah. stupidly early. I've always woken up about half past four in the morning. I don't know why. I wake up at half past four. I think well, I can't get up at half past four, so I get up at five o'clock, <laughs> and I and I. I think of something, I think of a tweet, and I think that's what, like, that's what being a poet is, thinking of stuff, and I try and think of something. And then I'll go for my early morning stroll, and I walk around Darfield between about half five and about quarter to seven, and I get back, and I, I see things, and I tweet them. Best thing I ever saw was a... And it's always the same walk. Yeah. You know, so you're trying to see something different, and that's what being a poet is, trying to see something different, always in the quotidian. So I saw a man in a high-vis jacket walking past a man in a camouflage jacket and they cancelled each other out and it was it was like it was like a do-it-yourself eclipse it was the most beautiful thing and so then I'll get back and I'll and the thing is because I'm up so early then my brain is at its best then I can think of things I can write things I can write things sometimes you're lucky enough that people ring you up and say can you write me a poem about this can you do me that yeah. otherwise you're just thinking of things then the trouble is getting up at that time, by the time diagnosis murder comes on in the <laughs> afternoon, I've gone, you know. So, yeah. like, last night, I was sitting on the... I said to my wife, there's a nice concert on Radio 3. I'm going to listen to this lovely concert. She went, you know, you're going to fall asleep. And I do, and I fall asleep like that. And, it's, and you know, people like my son-in-law comes and takes photographs of me asleep. And so, I, it just means... So, being a poet is that, I think, for me. It's getting up early and always, always being available for language, listening to people. You know, you can, you can lean into people... And they say, what are you doing? He says, it's all right, I'm a poet. They go, oh, that's fine, carry on. You can... I've always wanted to go into somebody's house and just sit on the settee and go, hello, what are you doing here? Well, I'm a poet, just carry on. And, and, and just people, people just say amazing things. You, you, you hang the tab, as they say in Derbyshire, just listening in. So that, that's what it involves, really. And also reading lots and lots of poems all the time to try and keep yourself kind of in trim for poems. So it's just that, really. It's, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a kind of ridiculous but also interesting job. When my three kids were little... I used to write him a poem every day and put it in the lunch boxes and on a little post-it note, which was a nice gesture until my eldest daughter, who was now in her 30s, went to secondary school and went, Dad, never, ever put a poem in my lunchbox oh. again. I said, no, I won't. Because it would have been terrible. It's embarrassing enough I've been a poet dad. But I've been a poet dad who puts... I mean, my kids' mates at school didn't think we had a telly and thought we didn't have any chairs and thought we all sat around in circles listening to beat poetry. And not clapping, but snapping our fingers like that. <laughs> Which, of course, we do, but... It, 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 <laughs> but only till seven o'clock, then I nod off. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it sounds pretty similar to being a comedian. Well, it is in a way, the because... Same, same sort of job. It's the same kind of thing, because you, you're always... You're listening, you're watching, you're using language. I'm so interested in that kind of interface between comedy and poetry. And in the end, so much of it is about just using language and trying to make language just go a different direction to what you're expecting. And it's such a fascinating thing. And you don't have to write it down. You can say it. You know, people 
who can't, I, I work a lot with people who, you know, who haven't got great literacy. And you say, look, you can't, if you can't write it down, don't matter. Just say it, just speak it. So, yeah, very, very similar, very, very close, I think, a lot of them. Some points aren't very funny, that's a fact. But um, <laughs> Philip Larkin, he was terrible. He, <laughs> he might have been actually in, in his house. Yeah. Well, as I had Grayson Perry on recently, as, as the artist, obviously, and, and I think that he's got a great sense of humour behind mm. what he's doing as well. Yeah. And I think, again, the art world is somewhere where they're not renowned for their sense of humour. And maybe no. poetry. I mean, they're fantastic comic poets. I think there is certainly more comedy in poetry, but there's a lot of poets who take themselves very seriously. There and are. does that... Do you think that puts people off a little bit, this kind of... Pom- there's this idea of the poet that, you know, you don't exemplify, which is that but kind it, of... Dis- it is true. Figure. If you send... If you're going, if I, go, I go into schools a lot, and if you go into a school... Less so these days, but if you go into a school, you say, right, draw me a picture of what the poet's going to look like. They draw this really tall fella... And he's got a corduroy suit on. And he's got patches on his elbows. And he's got a, a book that says, My Poems. And, and, it, and it's, it's often not like that. Some poets are serious. Now, I, I, I like serious poets. Some poets are kind of serious, serious, as it were. You know, like being clever, clever. Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of serious, serious. And, and they get up. And what always amazes me is they'll have a sheaf of poems to read from. And they never read from the top one. I've noticed that. They always, they always get the thing and they look at the audience and they go... And they turn it over like that and they read the second one. So I'm, I'm quite happy with poets being serious, but maybe sometimes I'm not that keen on pomposity because pomposity is an odd thing that can put people off. I'm convinced that everybody can do it. Yeah. You know, my upbringing taught me at school, at junior school, we were taught that everybody can do it, everybody can write, everybody can be artists, everybody can sing. And so I think that everybody can do it. But then the trouble with that is, the quid pro quo is, if everybody can write, then when do we find time to read it? That is a real problem. You know, every day when I'm walking down the street, here, somebody gives me a book. People post me books. I was once in the house. Somebody knocked on the door. This fellow came to the door. He said, my dad translates Greek epics into West Yorkshire dialect. I said, bless that man. He said, he's in car. He said, will you look at him? I says, oh, I will. I says, tell him to bring him. He says, he's in car. He's bent over like a question mark. I said, oh. I says, I'll have a word with him. So I came down thinking, these old fellas in the car, and he banged on roof at the car. He went, Dad, he'll read him. He'll read him. And this hand came out like this. This hand came out, and he, he passed me this book, and he said, here, take him. I says, look, with the best will in the world, I'm a busy man. It's going to take me a long time to read. He said, take as long as you want. And this was about 1985. And I've still got, I've not, not read him yet. But yeah, you do. It. So I think everybody can do it, but then... You've got to read them. That's yeah. the hard thing. Well, somebody's got to read them. You don't have to read all of them. It's not down well, to I, you. It, it feels like it is someday. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, it does. People, and then what you do is people, people send you a book, and then the next day they'll ring up and say, did you like it? And you'll try and bluff. You go, yeah, I think it was great. It was fantastic. The one about page 84. You go, that, was the, that was my favourite page. Go, There's only 83 pages. Yeah, I knew, I knew that. So, yeah, it is hard. It is difficult. Yeah. But there you go. But I think your stuff uh, you know, is accessible. I mean, you, you, it is about understanding language and... How it works, but you know, it's not—it's not off-putting in the way that sometimes poetry can be well, like impenetrable. You know, I've always liked to be that kind of popular poet, yeah. which means you take on interesting jobs. I've been poeting residence at the mighty Barnsley FC for a long time. I was poeting residence for the Humberside Police. That was a strange <laughs> job. I did an after-dinner speech for a lot of chief constables, and the chief constable of Humberside, he said, "You could be our poet." I said, "What would that involve?" He said, "You could go anywhere you want and write poems about it." I said, can I bring a film crew? I met little films. He went, yeah. I said, can I go out on a Saturday night? He went, yeah. I said, can I go out? And it was interesting because you got to places that poets don't normally get and you had to make poems up. I went on a dawn raid in Ghoul. It was amazing. <laughs> we, we, we met these, these amazing coppers. This copper, he, he said so much, I thought I'd never hear anybody say, he said, do you know me? I'm a man's man. I said, no. Oh. He said, we're after two, two in Ghoul. We're after a bad lad and a soft lad. I said, right. He said, I don't care about the soft lad, I want the bad lad. I said, right, I said, can I come and write poems? He went, yes, you can. He said, but you must come behind the health and safety copper. I said, I will. So we stood outside this house in Ghoul, and there was, a blo- there was the, the, the hard man, the health and safety copper, and me with a notebook. And they banged the door down, then the health and safety copper put a blanket out, like that, so, so broken glass wouldn't break uh, people's feet. Yeah. Then he went in, and he goes, I'm after bad lad. He shouts, I'm after bad lad. <laughs> and bad lad ran off. And... That's me. That was it. And then the soft lad came out and he went, do you want me? You know, but then afterwards I said, that was great. I said, you must never tell anybody about that. So, no, no. so don't tell anybody. So that, and that was interesting to, you know, to be in a place where poets don't normally get. So yeah. that, that was nice. And that, that's, then the poems that you write about that, 
are not great pieces of art, maybe, but they're kind of, they're, people can enjoy them and people can look at them and it just leads you to interesting adventures. Because as you know, part of the fun is when, when people ring you up, they go, you, they ask you if you can do something. I say, always say yes. And it leads to interesting adventures. Yeah. And if it don't work, they won't ask you again. So it don't matter. <laughs> can you do this? Yes. You know. So if you're the poet in residence at Barn, Barnsley Football Club, yes. it sounds like you're sitting in an office waiting for a footballer to knock on the door and say, can I have a poem about a unicorn? And they go, yeah, sure. That's more or less yeah. the job description, to be honest with you. <laughs> what, what happened was, it started many, many years ago, uh, 1997, when we got promoted to our one season so far in the Premier League. Oh, yes. And me and my mate... Who was, was a head teacher? We'd been going around lots of schools. We were sat in the pub and we had this idea one of those ideas where the more beer you have, the better the idea goes. And we're going, What about if they had a point at the football club? Let's do that. So we rang them up. We said, Do you fancy having a point? And they went, Being Barnsley, they went, Well, it cost us old. And I said, Well, <laughs> normally you'd, you'd charge a fee, but I said, Well, why don't we do it? Because we knew we'd get a lot of publicity. And it, it, it meant that it was on the telly a lot and it was on the radio a lot. And if an away team came, you'd write a poem for them. And what it still means is, I used to have to write a poem every week for the Barnsley Chronicle. And they rang up and said, it's got to be 16 lines long. It's got to fit in that space. And sometimes I wrote an 18-line one, and they just didn't print the last two lines. <laughs> and people would go, we didn't understand your poem. Is it that modern poetry? And, and then what would happen was, but now it still happens. It still happens 20 years on. People at the, at the match will go, you'll put that in a poem. But, and then one, one fellow said to me once, you'll not write a poem about this, you'll write a sonnet. And <laughs> me, my favourite was, uh, we had a, a German goalkeeper called Lars Lees in the Premier League. And I wrote this poem that went, Lars Lees, tall as the trees that grow in one well wood. Lars Lees, listen please, we think you're very good. And, uh, <laughs> and it turned out it was pronounced Lars Laser, which didn't make any sense. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Very good. I'll ask you some emergency questions. Emergency questions, good. Yeah. Uh, I'll ask this is a fairly new one, and you can choose uh, from your local museum if you want. Uh, but if you could have any one item from any museum or art gallery that you're allowed to take home and keep for yourself in the whole world, but it can be just from your local museum if you want, what one thing would you keep for yourself? We have a mystery object <laughs> at the Morris Dobson Museum. Okay. That nobody ever guesses what it is. So I'm going to take that home with me. Okay. What it is, I'll describe it. It's like a. It's like a a rectangular, cuboid, if you like, wooden truncheon with a handle on it. Okay. Like a truncheon, but a square truncheon. Okay. And on each side of the four sides of the truncheon, there are a number of black spots. It's fantastic. Right. And you take it to me and you go, what's this then? You hold it up and they go, it's a truncheon. No, it didn't. It's a game. No, it didn't. It turns out what it actually is, I'm going to reveal the secret, yeah. it's a thing from the 1920s for railway men to test their eyesight. So they'd look at that and go, nine spots. And they'd go, eight spots. And they'd go, seven spots. So I'm going to take that home with me. Then right. people come to the house and you have a little bit of fun with them. Yeah, you go, hey, what's good. this? Mystery object. Eh? And it's not, like you're, it's not like you're taking something from another culture. You're not, you're not, you're not taking it away. You're just taking it from the Morris Dobson Museum. So you yeah. be like that. Hey, guess that. <laughs> what could that be? Eh? Eh, you don't know what that is. How many? Nobody's ever guessed it. Nobody's right. ever guessed it in all the years. They sometimes guess the other one, which is a, like a wooden tuning fork that's like that. And people guess that because it's a thing that, again, railway men would put down here when they put brass on the button so it won't get on the shirt. They oh, always guess that one. Okay. But they never guess that one with the thing. I'm doing the action now. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's good. Uh, have you ever seen a ghost? No, I've never seen a ghost, although you have that dream where some tall person is stood at the foot of your bed. Yeah. I've had that a few times. I used to have that thing called hypnagogia. Yeah. You know, where you wake up and you think you're 94 feet long. <laughs> it's a weird thing because when you're waking up, the bits of your brain that control perspective wake up later on and when I was a kid I used to be scared and I used to, I used to say, Mum, I'm 94 feet long. And she went, well, you'll be able to get plenty of jobs, won't you? You'll be able to get, and won't need you down the pit. And then it's, and, but then every so often, about once, once a year, I have a dream there's a really tall person stood at the foot of my bed just looking at me. And it's not a ghost, maybe. It's just some kind of memory yeah. or it's some kind of thing. But it's weird, and it's just before you wake up, and yeah. so you're 94 feet long, and there's a, there's a, there's a figure stood at the foot of your bed. It's a bit like life in Lancashire, let's face it, but there is that. <clears throat> I'd yeah, like I... to see a ghost, I think, just to see what it would be like. Yeah. Well, it's not... Have you like, seen It's one? like Robin Hood. No, I have I've, I've had the same sort of things where and nearly everyone you talk to has seen one. They've just woken up, or yeah. they're sort of... It's part of that thing. You're in this hypnagogic state, and, and I think it goes back to when you're little... 
and your mum or dad would be at foot of your bed just checking you're asleep. Yeah, yeah. And so your memory goes back to that, I'm sure. That Maybe must be it. True. Unless it's a burglar. I had to... <laughs> I had a thing when I was very tired of sleep on a dressing room floor and then I sort of woke up and there was like a witch on my chest. Blimey. Like pushing down. But that's, again, that's one of the archetypal things that happens. Yes, yeah. That you get this kind of... Ma- and then a lot of these archetypes come from these visions that you have. As a child, isn't well, it? Well, and this yeah. half-waking, half-sleeping yeah. thing. And so yeah. they, we've created those rather than the other way around. It's not like, mm. oh, it's that... So it would that be really thing. frightening if you saw a real one, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it might have been a real one. It was trying to strangle me. Oh, well. <clears throat> I, got, I escaped. It was fine. Um, <laughs> or did you? I don't know. Ah. This could all be part of a waking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, though. Um, uh, let's see what else. I, I um, oh well, I, I like the fact that you you do you tour with. I'm um, no, I know this is a different one, but you do a tour show with uh, uh, Tony Husband, the cartoonist, and, yes. Lu- and Luke Goss. Luke Goss, not the Luke Goss. Oh, it'd be great if it was the Le- the. the so many Luke people Goss. think it's the Luke Goss. I just it's, I do we, this. I do an endless tour want. of village halls. Yeah. So like, I love doing tours in village halls. And he always says, Luke Carver Goss, because that's his name. But you still get people of a certain age waiting outside with Bross albums. And it's really disappointing when a, a balding man with a piano accordion gets out of the thing. So, yeah, I do tour with Luke Goss. I, I tour with uh, Tony Husband. We do a thing called a cartoon history of here, where he just does, he, we just make it up and we just do cartoons. The thing about Tony Husband is he's a fantastic cartoonist, but he can't stop. So he'll just he'll be in a pub and he'll go, oh, what, what's your hobbies? <laughs> Somebody to do a cartoon all the time. And he had to do a book of 50 uh, sex cartoons for Anne Summers. And we were, the shop, not the woman, and we were in, uh, we were, we were on tour and we were sat in a garden centre in Shropshire because we were between gigs. And he said, I've just got to do three more of these sex cartoons. I said, well, I'll go for a walk. And he's sat in the car doing these sex cartoons. And when I went for, came back from the walk, there was a crowd around the car <laughs> of people, sex staff, people from Shropshire, looking at cartoons. It's like so, yeah, it, dogging, isn't it? It's a sort of dog well, the, in a car. It's the equivalent of Shropshire. Drawing. That's right. So, yeah, and, and it's nice being on stage with somebody else. Yeah. You know, I do like being on stage on my own, but being on stage with somebody else. And with, with Luke, uh, we'll do songs, and then we make up a song at the end, and we have a little flip chart, and I make up stuff with a flip chart. People give me an idea, we make up songs. It's just nice. And it's just nice going to village halls. Village halls are always different. Um, the worst gig I ever did was in a village hall. It was a place called High Ham. Oh, yes. In uh, Somerset. I know it. And we'd been doing a week of village halls, and they kept saying, You think tonight's good? Wait till you get to High Ham. They'll love you in High Ham. And they kept saying, High Ham. And we got to High Ham, and it was me and my other mate, Martin, who we used to be in the band with. And, it, and we were just people doing poems and stories. And it said, Tonight, adult comedians. And I went, We're not adult comedians. We're just people doing poems and stories. He went, Oh, you'll be fine. And we did, we did half an hour to complete silence. And this man came to the front and he said, I'm going to the toilet now. If you say something funny while I'm out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to my mate, we may as well go. Yeah. So we went off the stage and the organiser went, is that it? I said, well, they don't like it. He said, can you go back, come back on stage for the formal vote of thanks and the presentation of the bouquet? And that was, that was 40 years ago and I still got cold at the thought of going back on that stage and they give you the bouquet from a 24-hour garage, you know, it's frightening. <laughs> but you do lots of radio work. Yes, I do. And I, was, I haven't heard this series, but you did a series about uh, being a writer where you talked to lots of different writers. Did you pick up anything from that about the writing art or does it, does it... Well, I do a show every week on Radio 3 yeah. called The Verb, yeah, yeah. which is about that. Yeah. It's about writing. And what, what you find out with that is that every writer is different. So that every writer will... Some writers will say, well, I get up at dinner time and I write for ten minutes and that's me done. Some writers will say, I get up very early, I write all day. Some writers will say, I can't write until somebody asks me to write something. Some writers will say, first idea, best idea. Some writers will say, I keep redrafting it until the moment it has to be published. So what that teaches you is that every writer is different and that's the exciting thing about it. That's why I love doing this Radio 3 show so much because every week you meet amazing writers who will somehow illuminate different strands of the writing world for you. And I've just, I did a, it's been repeated on Radio 4 Extra at the moment. Years ago, I did a series about pies called Who Ate All The Pies? And it went out on a Sunday afternoon and I wanted it to be called Crust Almighty. <laughs> they won't let us do that because it went out on a Sunday, but I got to eat pies. For six weeks on the BBC, it was great. And the best one we had was the them terrible pies they have in Scotland um, called 
but I think I've not got the, the scotch pie. Right. And I had to go to Dundee. And I had to wear a hidden mic. Because in, in Dundee, they don't call it a pie, they call it a peh. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, if you want an onion one, you go, I'll a peh. And an onion, yin, and ya. And so I had to put this hidden microphone on. And yeah. I had to go into this shop with a hidden microphone and go, I'll a peh. And an onion, yin, and ya. <laughs> and she went, you're not from Dundee. I said, no. <laughs> I tell you, it's awful when people do offensive Scottish accents. That's all, that's all I will say. I'm allowed to, because I'm my dad's Scottish. That's so you I'm are allowed. allowed. I'm, not, right. I'm not allowed, so it's no. okay. <laughs> it goes out as a podcast, doesn't it, as well, The Verb? Yeah, podcast, yeah. The Verb podcast, yes, that's right. Yeah, well worth listening to. Uh, I have heard that one. The other one was a, was a different one, but uh, obviously the same thing. Um, uh, and, uh, yes, let me... I know, hold on. I'll be fine in a second, that's right. This is why I have an emergency questions. Um, well, well, we'll do that in a sec. We're going to ask you to um, read a poem as well. Um, I mean, yeah, that, it, it, I mean, you're sort of quite nostalgic, I think, aren't you? Your stuff's quite sentimental. Well, I, I am a sentimental man. Yeah. So I, would, I cry very easily at stuff. But I think, I don't know, I think maybe the older you get, the more you start looking back. I've always tried to look forward as well. But maybe I, a, a lot of me writing is about the past, about my childhood, about my family about people that I knew. But I'm also always trying to look forward, trying to write about the moment. People do accuse me of being sentimental and looking back. Maybe, maybe I do a bit too much of that, I'm not sure. But maybe it's just a, the, the age that I am. Maybe you do start looking back. I, I am starting to look like my dad. When I had my haircut recently, the barber showed me the back of my neck. And I thought, that's the back of my dad's neck. <laughs> you know, I'm becoming like my dad. You know, I, I look at myself in the mirror and I think I'm like my dad. And he... he he was such a, a gentle man, and maybe I, I am starting to look like him, starting to think like him. So maybe so, maybe, maybe a lot of it is, I don't know, rose-tinted, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, I mean, it's, it's, I mean those things are always going to be important, the family stuff, the mm. looking back over your life. People, I mean, it's what resonates with people, I suppose. It is, well, people my age, so you look back at things, and you can mention, particularly if you've always lived in the same place, you can mention very specific things, like Maurice Dobson. Yeah, yeah. Or you can mention a particular bus number, the 37 as opposed to the 14. And people go, oh, and that's a kind of... I've always been interested in the universal in the local. You can be as local as you want, and that can be universal. The great poet George Mackay Brown never moved far out of the Orkney Islands, but wrote the most amazing universal poetry about the island of Hoy and about the island of Westray and Papa Westray. And you don't have to, you don't have to travel far to actually find universal truths. That's what I reckon. Anyway, I could well be wrong, but that's what I think. <laughs> and did, did it come easy to writing? Because I, you know, I'm writing something at the moment and I'm way behind and I've struggled and it's painful. And when it's finished, I like it. But when I'm writing it, I kind of hate it. Do you, do you, it, do it you... depends what you're writing. So um, writing poems, I find relatively easy. I've just been writing a big choral piece for a massive choir in Hertfordshire with Anne Dudley, yeah. you know, who was in The Art of Noise, and she wrote the music for Poldark. Right. And she, she said, I like to write this. So I wrote, I've written these choral pieces for her, and that was really hard. Really hard, because you end up writing too much. And you try and put the music in the words. Yeah. And so you have to cut stuff out. And then I wrote, I've written a couple of prose books, and I found that really hard. I did a book called Neither Note Nor Summit that was like my life. And I found that really hard, just having to cut bits out. They rang up and said, we'd like you to write a book. I said, look, I'm good at short things. I can write columns, I can write poems. They went, no, he'd like to write a long book. I said, how long? I said, what, what, 30,000 words? And they went, we thought 90,000. And we were all different. <laughs> and, and I found that really hard. So some of that kind of writing I find hard. But yeah. actually writing poems, because you're thinking about them as you're strolling about on your early morning stroll. Half the redrafting is done in your head. Yeah. So you think, I find them relatively easy, but I've, just, I've written an opera recently in Yorkshire dialect because I thought, can the operatic form, the long note, hold the short vowel? Because we speak in flat vowels, yeah. but most, most operas sung in a long, long note, and I, it was very hard because what happened was we got opera singers who were either singing a cod Yorkshire accent or they just couldn't do it. It was fascinating, utterly fascinating. So they go, I'm coming. And then also the, the problem of the... That was me doing an opera. Yeah, that was the, um, I'm, waiting, I'm not going to let you get away with well, it was, that. You're going to have to do more than that. Well, they do, the, the other problem within the flat vowel was the T apostrophe. Right. Which nobody's ever said. I'm going to pit. I'm going down pit. So you get these opera singers. I'm going 
it was like somebody falling downstairs in armour. You know, it was, it, was, it was a frightening sound. But then we got an opera singer from, from Doncaster, actually, who could actually hold that and not do the... T it was so fascinating trying to do that. It was an interesting meeting of minds. The other closest we got was somebody from uh, Cardiff, because they had that kind of odd A, right. Cardiff Arms Park. You know, so they were able to do that thing. But it was interesting because I always think that, as the great Leeds poets Tony Addison said... People who talk like me are the ones they give the comedy parts to. You know, so to try and show that you can write a high art like an opera in this kind of verse. Because a lot of people don't like my voice. I know that. Some people think I put it on. People think at home I talk like Prince Charles. And in fact, <laughs> the opposite is the case. At home, Prince Charles talks like me. And, <laughs> which would be great, wouldn't it? That would be so great. That would be great. But people say, oh, he puts it on. He doesn't talk like that in real life, then, knows. And, you know, I actually do yeah. in the house. Don't like this. I haven't got a microphone in the house, obviously, but, but uh, <laughs> apart from that, it's just the same. And um, I was saying at the beginning, you know, the end of the decade, do you think this... Does the decade meaning this 10 years since 2010, do you, do you feel like a lot's changed since you were... Oh, a bit, you're about, you're a bit about my age 10 years ago. Well, I'm 63 now, so I was yeah. 53 then. And yes, I'm 52. It, I mean, part of it is... That thing where people say, well, of course, it's not the new decade till 2011. So <laughs> all that kind of rap. Yeah. But I remember, I remember I was in the same house of the decade and I, you felt kind of, 2009, you felt sort of hopeful, didn't you? You thought, yeah. well, things, things can only get better. Things yeah. are going to be great. Things, even though we've had this terrible crash, you think, well, we'll be fine. We'll be all right. They'll, they'll be opening new libraries. There'll be plenty of sure start centres <laughs> carrying on. We'll keep going. The North won't get neglected. Somehow <laughs> things will happen. You know, it'll be great. Tories will never get in again, ever, ever, ever. And then, then you kind of get here and you think, oh, that was wrong. That was totally wrong. That was it. You know, and you think, and, and so, yeah, it's, it, it's, you just hope for better things for the next decade, really, you do, because yeah. I still feel full of energy and vim, but you think in 10 years, you know, and I'm 73, will I still feel as full of energy and vim if things have gone downhill? in the same way they have in the last 10 years. That would yeah. be a bit scary, won't it, I reckon? I still have a full head of hair, yes. I'm hoping, because my brother's bald, my dad was bald, and my son's bald, but I've got my mum's hair, so hopefully I'll still have a full head of hair when I'm 73, so I'll look a bit like this, except I'll be more wrinkled, but I'll still have a full head of hair. I'll look a bit like Melvin Bragg. That'll be great. <laughs> but no, looking, for, looking ahead 10 years ago, I never foresaw what would be happening now. But then again, you never would, would you? You wouldn't foresee No, things. no. I mean, it has, when you think of this decade in those terms, yeah, it's been quite, it's been quite a big shift. It's been a heck I mean, of even from 22, I had Frank Cottrell boys so I'm talking about the Olympics, mm. uh, which hasn't gone out yet, won't have gone out when this goes out. Uh, but so much has changed since, you know, that, that feeling in the UK that we had when the, well, the Olympics was here, it's, it's sort of within four years. It's... And that's the other reason, that you stay where you are, I stay where I am, because you think, well, eventually, the North, it's got to rise again, and something's got to happen in the North, something's got to shift. So that I think, I always talk about maybe the Queen should move to Barnsley, you know, that, well, that would start it, and maybe on the coins, Fidef Idimp Ore Ada on. you know, actually, said that on the coins... <laughs> So that it would feel, because you always think that the, all the economic power has always been sucked down into the south, and if somehow we could just suck a bit of it back up, you know, if they have HS2, if it actually starts in Barnsley, you know, then people would want to come. That would be fantastic, I think, in my humble opinion, you know, but that probably won't happen, no. Richard, to be honest with you. I think that some of that probably won't happen. No, but some you, of that won't you never, Well, so much has happened in the last 10 years, you never know what might happen. You uh, never know. It's been lovely to talk to you. Do, do you want to read us uh, some poetry? Can I read us just one poem? Is that all right? Yeah, that'd be lovely. I've got in this bag called The North. Okay. I'm going to put the microphone down. Okay. That's all right. We'll, I'll cover for you. He's, he's getting the book out of the, of the bag. He's picked it up. So I'll read back, a poem. He's back. Um, <laughs> this, this is just, uh, this is my new, uh, I've written a new pamphlet. Good. Of poems. I love pamphlets because they're not like books. They're just little pamphlets. They're great. I love pamphlets. And, uh, because they're not a book, they're just little tiny things that you can hold in your hand. And so this is, <laughs> this is a kind of, it's a fairly serious poem, I suppose. And I love that word, oh, without an H. It's a great poetic thing, oh. Yeah. With an H, it's kind of, oh. <laughs> but without an H, it's kind of declamatory, oh. And I read that terrible thing, uh, December 2018, there was a bit in the paper where it said a food bank opens in a primary school in Norfolk. I think, God, I wouldn't have seen that in coming in 2010. No. Or 2000, I mean. 
So it's called the food bank in the primary school. And it's about that thing. Well, anyway, it's just about that. That horror. And each line starts with, oh. Oh, tins of beans beside those little infant chairs. Oh, deputy head bringing pasta in an Aldi bag. Oh, reading corner where soup is stored because everybody donates soup. Oh, children with faces that belong to their grandparents. Oh, unforgiving gulls circling the playground. Oh, single tin of raspberries like a cartoon sunset. Oh, stray hairs in the nose of the uncle sent with carriers. Oh, bright paintings by year two children in vivid colours. Oh, girl in her brother's shoes. Oh, sums, you are needed here, you are needed here. Oh, children who thought this was a role-playing area. Oh, teachers who wished this was a role-playing area. Oh, past sell-by date, the NQT saw and didn't say. Oh, rain beginning to fall just before home time. Oh, school caretaker sweeping up spilt sugar. Oh, dinner lady weeping into the parts of her pinny she can reach. Oh, parents forming a patient queue with the odd tired jostle. Oh, spider on the ceiling observing this facet of civilization. Oh, year six girl helping to carry heavy boxes, heavy things. Oh, skipping reception children. Oh, Tory MP standing for a photo opportunity with his donation. Oh, Tory MP standing for a photo opportunity with his donation. Oh, Tory MP standing for a photo opportunity with his donation. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Trivia, it sounds like there's a lot coming in uh, 2020 for you anyway, lots of things coming up. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll finish my, uh, my new choral piece. Yep. Um, I'm, writing a, I'm writing a play. Uh, I'm hoping to carry on with the male modelling. Just a bit of catalogue work. <laughs> you know, pointing in a tank top. It's the future. <laughs> <laughs> it's been absolutely fantastic to meet you. Ladies and gentlemen, we give a massive round of applause. Ian McMillan! Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Come again next week. We've got another one next week. Come and see us then. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Rich Tang, and my guest, Ian McMillan. Thank you to Pest for coming out on tour. I haven't even paid them for doing that and playing this lovely music. Thank you to everyone at Sheffield City Hall, to everyone at ACAST, everyone at Go Faster Strike. Uh, I, my producer for this show is James Hingley. My series producer uh, I'm indebted to is Ben Walker. This is a Fathers Go Faster Strike.com and Sky Potato production. Go to rahalastapa.co.uk to find out more. Why not become a badger? Pay £3 a month, get loads of extras and help us make even more podcasts. If you like these... Why not? £3 a month and we're doing eight... I'm putting out eight a month at the moment. Think how little that is. I mean, it's not as good as being free, which it is as well. But, you know, what can I say? I haven't really thought that through, have I? That's what I can say. 